Greetings. Thank you all for returning to this week's new study episode titled, Tribulation, Such as is Common to Man, Part 2. I am Pastor John, welcoming our returning global audience of unchurched, self-study people, as well as those who are part of a church. For anyone looking for greater depths in God's Word with a stronger personal study, we also extend a warm welcome to all our new listeners here for the first time. Thank you all for listening. May you all be blessed of God. Our last episode, Tribulation, Such as is Common to Man, Part 1, was posted on June 11th. Last week we learned, many people over the years that I have seen saved in Christ have read this portion of that verse. But will with the tribulation also make the way of escape? Many teach in our temptation that based on this verse segment, a person will have a way of escape from a temptation. Yet, no one knows what that escape is. That escape has no definition, no explanation. Therefore, my question is, just what does that verse segment mean? Notice, also, that this verse segment ends with a comma, and then the verse ends with the final segment, which reads, that you may be able to endure it. How does one escape a temptation if, in fact, one has to endure it, as the verse appears to indicate? John Gill told us three things we need to learn more about. First, we ought not to presume on our own strength or depend on outward things, since the temptations that as yet will come upon us are such as men might easily bear. It was noted also, when trials come of any degree of severity, we should not distress ourselves with the apprehensions of it, as if it was some strange or unusual thing. Our commentator noted further, there were heavier and more severe trials you might expect. So, it is true for us today. Not that we want more severe trials, but... To find out more, listen to our previous episode titled, Tribulation, Such as is Common to Man, Part 1. This week, our study is titled, Tribulation, Such as is Common to Man, Part 2. How can tribulation be common to man? This week we will continue to work at answering this question. If a person can pray for temptation to be removed, how does one experience tribulation? There appears to be a digression from temptation to trial and then from trial to tribulation. I see this digression frequently, so let us look for the answers. Our verse this week is still the last verse in 13 verses, teaching, learning from Israel's failures. Our verse reads, No temptation has taken you except what is common to man. God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted above what you are able, but will with the temptation also make the way of escape, 
that you may be able to endure it. From the World English Bible, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. Many people over the years that have been saved in Christ have only read this portion of that verse. But will would the temptation also make the way of escape? Many people that teach and preach on this verse only focus on this segment of it. Yet, it is followed by a comma and encloses with that you may be able to endure it. When this portion of the verse is included, many people ask the question, how can I escape a temptation if I actually have to endure it? This will be our focus this week, looking for an answer to this question and possibly other questions generated by this text. Because the word escape can imply to us today something that may not be accurate, we will read this verse in the Bible in worldwide English. It reads, No testing has come to you that other people do not have. But God will not fail you. He will not allow the testing to be too hard for you. No, when the testing comes, God will make a way out for you so that you can go through the testing. Notice how it still ends in that cryptic wording that suggests two opposite things we have already noticed. Notice the first sentence in both Bibles. No temptation has taken you except what is common to man. And no testing has come to you that other people do not have. While worded differently, they say and mean the same thing. The bottom line in either case is no temptation, no testing has taken or come to you that is not common to mankind or that other people do not have. Meaning, others go through the same issues of temptations, trials, and tribulations as you do. The problem we have understanding this more fully is that not every person goes through the same issue or issues at the same time. Meaning, one can suffer the loss of a loved one, while someone else can suffer an accident that causes loss and or injury of some sort. Today, modern people assign fault with people in trial and or tribulation. The ministry they are supposed to have with people simply is not there because of this get-over-it, quote-unquote, attitude. Here is an example. No matter where you live, there are homeless people with precious few clothes and, in many cases, even less food. They have little, if any, money at all. This is why we have services that help such people. Yet, there are people who say they know and love God. They say they are saved by His grace. Yet, they scoff at such people, telling them to stop bleeding the system and get a job. When someone sees such a person, they have no idea why that person is in the situation they are in because no one does not, 
despite what one may think, know everything about the person's reasons for being in the situation they are in. It may be due to laziness, or it may be due to living in a negative situation that can little, if at all, be changed. Many American churches teach that if you want to be successful, you should not be in the presence of such disadvantaged people. If you measure your success by money, position, and the comforts of life, then ignoring the poor and disadvantaged just may work wonders for you. However, where in the Bible does Jesus exhibit this form of dealing with those who are poor and worse still, destitute? Jesus never taught us to shun the poor and disadvantaged in this life. He even told us that the poor will always be with us. For you will always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. From Matthew chapter 26, verse 11. And, for you will always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. From John chapter 12, verse 8. The thoughts in these verses are originally found in the book of Exodus, chapter 15, verse 11. The complete thought is found in verses 10 through 11, which read, You shall surely give, and your heart shall not be grieved when you give to him, because that for this thing Yahweh, your God, will bless you in all your work, and in all that you put your hand to. Verse 11, our reference verse. For the poor will never cease out of the land. Therefore, I command you to surely open your hand to your brother, to your needy, and to your poor in your land. From the World English Bible. As you can see, giving to others is a command and not a suggestion. It can also not be reasoned that this is Old Testament scripture and therefore today does not apply. For we see Jesus much later in their modern time, quoting this passage when he says, For you will always have the poor with you. Truly, today, are the poor still with us? I am sure you know the answer to that question. Notice as well, this Exodus passage tells us by command to surely open your hand to your brother, to your needy, and to your poor in your land. This is not a suggestion, folks. It is a command. We, even today, are commanded to open our hand to our brothers and sisters, to our needy, and to our poor in our land. Giving an offering to our church body is one way to accomplish this. There are other well-vetted organizations we can give to as well. Jesus is making a contrast in a teaching of his as recorded in both Matthew and John. In each case, he is quoted verbatim by the gospel writers for you will always have the poor with you. The second part of this sentence makes the conclusion he is emphasizing. 
Yet, it should not go unnoticed that the poor will always be with us. A fact that Jesus made in a logical statement and is still true today. So, if the poor will always be with us, does it make any sense to tell them to get to work? For many people in this situation want work, cannot get it for any number of reasons. If someone like this needs schooling to learn a new trade, with the cost of education in America today, this is easier said than done. Are there people who just shirk responsibility? Yes, there is, and they are not who we are talking about. We are talking about those who are poor by situation and not by choice. Lazy people are poor by choice. Here is a very real financial issue facing those who do work. Your 12-year-old car is in desperate need of replacement. Both new and used cars are very expensive in these post-pandemic times. Loan interest rates are the highest they have been in many years. Between the cost of a used car and the additional loan interest rate applied to it for a loan payment over time, one can be very pressed financially to have money for other things. Giving to the poor is the first thing that is either lessened or stopped completely because the money just isn't there anymore. It's going into paying for the car. How does this relate to our study verse? At the very least, it is a trial that can also come with temptations we need to resist. Regardless of how poor a person is, and many much more poor than in our examples here, we are not taught to either pass them by on our way to our own wealth, nor are we taught to forget them altogether. If one does not have money to give, as in our examples, one can always serve in some service to poor people. One can join a team of people that provides food, clothing, and other very needed necessities. You simply do the work, and the people you work for provide the need with the appropriate sustenance. Now, let us look deeper into what our verse is telling us. But God is faithful. This was the only source of security, and this was enough. If they looked only to themselves, they would fall. If they depended on the faithfulness of God, they would be secure. The sense is, not that God would keep them without any effort of their own, not that he would secure them if they plunged into temptation, but that if they used the proper means, if they resisted temptation, and sought his aid, and depended on his promises, then he would be faithful. This is everywhere implied in the scriptures, and to depend on the faithfulness of God. From Barnes' New Testament Notes We have three things to note in this passage by Barnes. 
first. If they looked only to themselves, they would fall. Meaning, if we, independently of God, work to get out of a temptation, we will fall. This is how we fall from temptation into trial. Further, from trial to tribulation, if we still do not understand how this works. All this despite the fact that trials and tribulations can suddenly fall on us without any warning. A car accident is a sudden trial or even tribulation that falls on us. Someone's home suddenly, totally, destroyed by a severe storm is at least a trial and more frequently a tribulation. Yet, we can avoid many of the trials and tribulations if we get how it works when we are tempted. Here, Barnes is very clear. I have personalized Barnes' comments for better understanding. If we look only to ourselves, we will fall. In this case, falling is the same as failing. Secondly, if they depend on the faithfulness of God, they would be secure. What does it mean to be secure yet still tempted? Remember our quote from last week about Job? To refresh your memory, then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you made and hedge about him, and about his house, and about all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his substance is increased in the land. But put forth your hand now, and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power, only on himself, Put not forth your hand. So Satan went forth from the presence of the Lord. From the American King James Version, Job chapter 1, verses 9 through 12. If you have read the book of Job, you know that Job lost everything. People he knew, even his own wife, scoffed him tremendously. Yet, he suffered all the devil assaulted him with and came out on the other side of this more wealthy than when he was first tempted by the devil. Now, remember what Barnes told us? He said, if they depend on the faithfulness of God, they would be secure. The sense is, not that God would keep them without any effort of their own, not that he would secure them if they plunged into temptation, but that if they used the proper means, if they resisted temptation and sought his aid and depended on his promises, then he would be faithful. Is this not how Job was? I think you can see that there is a condition here that we fail to realize and further properly understand. Many of us today don't even attempt to work this out. Notice how Barnes' commentary passage opens, but in more personalized terms. If 
you depend on the faithfulness of God, you would be secure. The sense is, not that God would keep you without any effort of your own. I personalize that to make more sense in these modern times. Notice, there is an onus on us to be willing and faithful participants in our life and walk with God. If they used the proper means, if they resisted temptation and sought his aid and depended on his promises, then he would be faithful. We can read that more personally this way. If you use the proper means, if you resist temptation and seek his aid and depend on his promises, then he will be faithful. No matter how you read that commentary segment, we have four things to properly attend to so we see his faithfulness. One, we must use the proper means. Two, we must resist temptation. Three, we must seek his aid. Four, we must depend on his promises. Does anyone do all four of those items all the time as we should? I think the honest answer is no. Notice further, for as he, by his permission, makes way for the temptation or affliction which otherwise could not come, and as he knows how, in what manner, and at the best time, to deliver his people out of temptations, so he does and will, in his providence, open a way that they may escape out of them at least so as not to be overpressed and destroyed by them. From the New John Gill's exposition of the entire Bible. This should pull this subject into focus and better understanding. Notice this opening comment that should put it all in clear view now. For as he, by his permission, makes way for the temptation or affliction which otherwise could not come. Can you see how temptations or afflictions cannot just randomly, even haphazardly, come upon God's people? Temptations or afflictions only come by God's permission. You cannot suffer anything without God's permission for it to come upon you. Yet, so many people ask this question, Why is God allowing me to suffer this way? The wording may change slightly person to person, but that is the main thrust of what the question is asking. We should also note that an affliction is either a trial or a tribulation. It is simply a different word for the same thing. A light affliction is a temptation. A moderate affliction is a trial. A strong affliction is a tribulation. The unfortunate thing here is that we draw the line that separates trial from tribulation. Yes, we have read the dictionary terms for both these words, 
However, trial and tribulation are more experientially defined than by the dictionary. Yet, the word meaning found in the dictionary are our best definitions for setting the boundaries between temptation and trial, and between trial and tribulation. A temptation can be hard and still not be a trial. A trial can also be very hard and still not a tribulation. This is why we need the dictionary meaning for knowing these words correctly. What is on the plus side of all this is that you may be able to bear it. For God does not always think fit to remove at once an affliction or temptation, though at the earnest request of his people, as in the case of Paul, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 7 through 8. Yet he gives them grace sufficient to endure and stand up under it, yes, to get the victory of it, to be more than conquerors, and to triumph over it. From the New John Gill's Exposition of the Entire Bible. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 7 through 8 is the reference. However, the complete thought is found in verses 7 through 9. For this reason, I will read 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 7 through 9. By reason of the exceeding greatness of the revelations, that I should not be exalted excessively, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, that I should not be exalted excessively. Concerning this thing, I begged the Lord three times that it might depart from me. He has said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather glory in my weakness, that the power of Christ may rest on me. While many have looked at these verses as an issue of the flesh, there is also a spiritual understanding of these three verses that is often not taught here, where I live. About Paul and his thorn in the flesh, we read, it certainly was something personal, affecting him, individually, and not as an apostle, causing at once acute pain, as, quote, thorn, end quote, implies, and shame, buffet, as slaves are buffeted. Messenger of Satan, who is permitted by God to afflict, he is saints as Job to buffet me, in Greek, present, to buffet me even now, continuously. After experiencing the state of the blissful angels, he is now exposed to the influence of an evil angel. The chastisement from hell follows soon upon the revelation from heaven, as his sight and hearing had been ravished with heavenly revelations so his touch is pained with the thorn in the flesh. From Robert Jameson, A. R. Fawcett, and David Brown Commentary, Critical and Explanatory on the Whole Bible, 
1871. What is the thorn in the flesh? We may have an answer to that question outside the obvious. A thorn in the flesh. Some peculiar and long-continued temptation or trial, the nature of which he, Paul, chose to conceal. From John S. C. Abbott and Jacob Abbott Illustrated New Testament, 1878. The great and special sin which St. Paul was in danger of by the abundance of revelations, namely the sin of spiritual pride. Spiritual pride is so dangerous a sin that it is a mercy to be freed from it, even by bodily pain. God sees our danger when we see not our own, and will hurt the body to save the soul of his dearest children. Oh, how much better is it that the body should smart than that the soul should be overmuch exalted. It is a happy thorn in the flesh which lets the pestilent and corrupt blood of spiritual pride out of the soul. From Expository Notes with Practical Observations on the New Testament by William Burkett. If we look at this thorn in the flesh as an identifier for a spiritual thing, I think you can see how all of us can have a thorn in the flesh. The thorn being the spiritual truth we may have great difficulty facing and thus endure its pain for a protracted period of time. The length of that period of time is determined by how long it takes for the pestilent and corrupt blood of spiritual pride to be let out of the soul. Next week, we continue our summer series titled Tribulation, The Goal of Our Faith, Part 1. What is the goal of our faith? In this study, we will find out just what the goal is. Does the solution, the goal, have anything beneficial to us as his children? Join us next week to find out. Play or download our episodes from one of our podcast hosts, or follow direct links to these platforms on our website under the podcast menu item. Details follow. All Bible quotes without a citation are from the New English Translation Free Version. We greatly appreciate our audience. We look forward to the return of all our faithful listeners, followers, and new listeners. Thank you all so much. We are very pleased to serve a diverse international audience. Please share our podcast with family, friends, and others you believe would find it a blessing. This study podcast is a wholly self-funded outreach presented by the Church of the Unchurched, currently an all-electronic Boston-based outreach uniting the community of lost, searching, lonely, and forgotten in Christ. If you are visiting for the first time, welcome and God bless you. If you are unsaved, we truly hope you find God 
as well as receiving him as Lord and Savior of your life. Please find a short link to our episode titled, How to Be Saved, at the bottom of any episode description. To learn more about us and who we are, give our episode titled, Introduction, About Us, Who We Are, a listen. In that episode, you will learn more about us, who we are reaching out to, our mission, vision, ministry, and more. Again, a short link to this episode is found at the bottom of any episode description. Find our website at https colon forward slash forward slash the church of the unchurched dot o r g please type the church of the unchurched as a single word with no hyphens in unchurched our bible tablet and desktop compliant website has more information links to many of our podcast platforms under the podcast menu item We are found on podcast platforms like iTunes, Google Podcasts, Amazon Podcasts, and Spotify, to name a few. We refresh all our feeds with every weekly episode upload on Sundays, East Coast Time, USA. These sites update our feed within 24 hours of our refresh. Our RSS feed is syndicated on many popular podcast RSS feed platforms. Find us on a preferred platform to follow us as we continue to grow. Now, to him who is able to strengthen you, to the only wise God, through Jesus Christ, be glory forever. Amen. Until next week. This is Pastor John for the Church of the Unchurched.